So first Samuel chapter 1 till chapter 2 verse 11 and it starts on page 271. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Sufite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Suf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why, why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I had been praying here out for my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the, in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her 
young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves up for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. When Elkanah went home to Ramah, then, sorry, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Um, do please keep that passage open. You'll find there is no outline on the back of your service sheet. I apologise for that. Uh, but you have a space there to take notes if you want to. Uh, shall we pray? Father, thank you that you have given us your word and that these things are written down for our instruction. Pray that as we look at them together, you would uh, give us a clear sight of your word to us in these scriptures, that you would have us uh, humble before you and that we would pray to you as Hannah prays to you. And that we would see you do mighty things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Mark said, we're beginning a series in 1 Samuel for the next 10 weeks. Uh, taking on 31 chapters in 10 weeks means quite long passages. So if you're stated to read any time at this term, uh, prepare yourself. Uh, it would be good to be reading through 1 Samuel if you have the time during the week just to get a bit of a sense of where we're going. Uh, next week we get to chapter 5. Uh, so, so the big chunks kind of being skipped at various points to make this work. So do read through 1 Samuel to get a sense of uh, what's going on. 1 Samuel 1, uh, verse 1, we're, we're, where are we? We're about 1100 BC at this point. That is, we're still in the time of the Judges. If you remember Judges, for those of you who are here, uh, Andy was preaching through Judges last year. Uh, we're, we're somewhere uh, around the end of the Judges. In fact, literarily, we follow straight on from the end of Judges. Judges, uh, chapter 21, verse 25 In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That's the context. Uh, Nobody uh, listens to God. Everyone does whatever they they fancy. 
And the book of Judges says, the problem is we have no king. We want a king. And the problem that Judges, uh, the solution Judges sees is addressed now in in the books of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, as, as we begin to see what sort of king we need. Of course, not everybody was apostate. There were faithful people in that time. The book of Ruth tells us about Ruth and Boaz and the people of Bethlehem who were, seemed to have been godly people. And so it is with Hannah here in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. The lady who will be the mother of Samuel the kingmaker. So in our passage today, we have two interweaving storylines. There is the, the immediate story of Hannah and her longing for a child and the wider story of of the unfolding biblical narrative, the need for a king that's raised in Judges that will be fulfilled through uh, 1 and 2 Samuel and beyond. And those two things uh, weave together, and and some of the the wider story bubbles up a little bit for us in this passage, which I hope to make clear to us as we go through. Uh, So keeping those two stories in mind is going to be helpful for us. Uh, Keeping two poles in mind is going to be helpful in terms of applying the passage. Let me flag these up for us. Uh, Two cautions. Uh, The first is that the temptation for us is going to be to draw a a straight line from Hannah to us and see the way she prays as as a perfect model for us. And if we copy her, uh, we'll get the outcome that she gets. Okay, I want to say uh, that's a danger for us. It's a danger, uh, it's a common misstep in Bible reading to see something that is descriptive in history of something God did do and read it as a prescriptive thing for what God will do for every Christian. So let me say, I want to avoid that pole, but equally, I do want to remember this is biblical description. That is, it is a description of what God is like and the things that God has done. And so we we shouldn't say, because God did it then, he can't do it now, he won't do it now. Rather, I want us to, to walk between those poles and see that God may choose to do it, but he does call on us to be be like Hannah today. And I want to raise that up front because I'm aware that for some people here, uh, Hannah is a beacon of light. There will be people here, probably, who are struggling at the moment, suffering in some way, uh, aware of a burden in their life they have prayed about. And for them, uh, Hannah stands out as a beacon because if I just do what Hannah does, then the Lord will resolve uh, the tension in my life, the problem that I'm facing. Uh, He may do. But I want to say up front that that there's no promise here that he will. And I say that because I want us all to hear this passage as we're meant to hear it and as we'd like to hear it. With those two poles and the two stories in mind then, uh, let's look at the passage together. All I'll do is walk through the the verses, uh, highlighting a few things. And and as we get to to chapter 2 and how Hannah Hannah applies the passage, uh, then we'll look at how it might uh, cash out for us. Okay, that's where we're going. So, uh, setting the scene then, uh, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, their background information, introducing us to the key characters for the next few chapters. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Verse 2, he had two wives, one called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Bigamy. Got your attention, didn't it? Bigamy. It's not great, is it? Um, Elkanah, he's an Israelite. He's, he's one of God's chosen people who has an inheritance in the land of Israel, but he has no children. Uh, by naming her first, I take it that Hannah is his first wife. They try to have children. Uh, like Abraham, he's desperate for a son. Like many men, uh, the, the great men of the Bible, he's desperate for a son and doesn't have one. 
And we know that tension from our own history in this country. We, we were up at the Tower of London a couple of weeks ago for my son's birthday, and we get told the story of Henry VIII and his six wives, a man who was desperate for a son and did all sorts of horrible things to his wives in order to get a son because it's really important to carry on the family name. Uh, it's certainly true if you're a Tudor king of England, and it was certainly true if you're an Israelite in Elkanah's day. You want a, a son. So Elkanah takes a second wife, and she bears him children. The inheritance issue is resolved, isn't it? He has lots of kids now, uh, by Penina. But it's worth noting, I raise the issue of bigamy, because it will become a thing in our culture. Over the next ten years, there will be campaigns for allowing multiple person marriages beyond the the two people that we would recognise as as the biblically mandated uh, way of doing things. And people will point to the Bible and say, look, there are people who have multiple spouses. And I would say, just look at the passage. Everywhere you see people with multiple uh, spouses in the Bible, it's a a marital disaster. And so it is here. Uh, Hannah has no children, Penina has many, and there is real strife in the family. That's a sidebar. Uh, Verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Uh, The other group of people we're being introduced to are the priests. Uh, Eli, a man who also has children, Hophni and Phinehas, who disappear from our narrative here and will come back up again uh, just after our passage in chapter 2. They're uh, disreputable types, reprobate children, but he has children. Uh, Eli, the high priest, and his uh, significant kids. Elkanah is a man who l- worships the Lord. He takes his family up to, to Shiloh. He's a, a man who uh, leads the family in their devotion, dysfunctional as the family is. Uh, and so we have uh, the cast of characters for the next chapter or so. Uh, the rest of the passage from verse 4 through to the end of uh, 2 verse 11 splits into three parts roughly. Uh, verses 4 to 19, if you're taking notes, uh, is uh, God's promise and Hannah's faith. Uh, verses 20 to 28, uh, God's gift and Hannah's faithfulness. And then 2, 1 to 11, Hannah's song, which is where we'll end. I'll just down that passage with me, would you? Verse 4. Uh, verses 4 to 7 capture the situation brilliantly, don't they? Uh, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice. Whenever. Year after year. Years of trying for kids, mourning the passing years, wondering if it'll ever happen, looking down at her fruitless womb as Penina has more kids. Years of going up to Shiloh for the annual festival. It was meant to be the great day of the year. It wasn't that common to eat meat in those days, but you'd take the animals up and you'd sacrifice them, you'd get your piece of the meat. It was like your mum's Christmas dinner. And communion altogether. It was like a great big religious feast that was, was, was super. Everyone was, was supposed to be delighted and feasting and excited. It was the highlight of the year. But, but for Hannah, it was a time to endure the provocation of her rival. Look at verse 7. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Penina is called the rival. She doesn't get named after verse 5. She is, throughout the rest of the text, she's the rival, the tormentor, the enemy. She's the one who would say, I need six portions this year, Elkanah, because Zedekiah's been weaned now. He needs some meat to eat. And then would turn to Hannah and say, Hannah, why won't the Lord give you a son? Maybe he doesn't care. She provoked her. 
provoking her to reject her God, perhaps. Certainly provoking her to weeping and to not eating. And there is no doubt that this is from God. Look at verses 5 and 6. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her. Do you see? It's from the Lord. Here is the, the, the God who has commanded multiplication and inheritance of the land. And here she is closing the womb. Here he is closing the womb of Hannah. Why would he do that? Doesn't he care? And poor Elkanah, bless him, he does try, doesn't he? Verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? He loves her, he tries to comfort her, but he has no power. He can't help, really. And so she weeps. And she refuses to eat and drink, year after year, whenever they went up. And perhaps for some of us, we feel that keenly. It may not be kids for us. Maybe it's the the hunt for a spouse. Maybe it's uh, feeling very keenly your poverty and wishing you had more. Perhaps it's ill health. Perhaps it hasn't come yet, but I guess for many of us the future will have these things in them. You feel very keenly Hannah's pain. Perhaps you also feel other people provoking you. People pointing at you and saying, where is your God? Why doesn't this pain go away? If he cares, if he's powerful, why doesn't he deal with it? I wonder, would you do what Hannah does in verses 9 to 11? Look down with me, would you? When the eating and drinking is over, verse 9, Hannah does two things. She stood up, verse 9, and she prayed to the Lord. She went to the temple and she prayed to the Lord. See, Hannah's unusual in all sorts of ways in our passage. She's unusual in her generation, because if you read the book of Judges, there's not really that many people who pray. In her generation, the whole nation is apostate. She's unusual because she prays. In fact, she's the only woman in the Old Testament we're told praise. She's a model for us. And some of, some of her, her prayers here are, are deep and, and passionate, powerful theological prayers. She's reflected on the person of her gods in a way that many people in the Bible haven't. She's a great model believer. She's provoked to reject her God, but instead she goes to God and she prays. And she prays, doesn't she? Verse 11. O Lord Almighty. She's the first person in the Bible to use those words. We, we say it in the creed. And we sing it in our songs. She's the first person to articulate the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is able to do anything he wants to. And here is the woman whose womb is closed and she comes to that God and says, God, I know you're able. Let me plead with you. And she says, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Here is Hannah approaching God with humility. She repeatedly refers to herself as a servant. She doesn't come to demand from God, as we sometimes can do. She is presumptuous. She comes right into the presence. Repeatedly throughout the passage, it's described that she is before the face of the Lord. Not simply in in the right religious building, but right up to the face of God. She's right there with him. And she presumes to speak. But she doesn't demand. She 
pleads and she asks for mercy. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor shall ever be used on his head. Wow. Could you pray that? Would you pray that? It's the test of our motives, isn't it? When we ask for things in prayer, I wonder, um, if God gave you what you asked, would you give it all back to him? It's a remarkable thing to say, isn't it? Uh, James 4 tells us that we don't uh, get our heart's desires for two reasons. One of them is that we don't pray. We don't ask, and so we don't get. But the second is that we don't ask with the right motive. So we do pray, but we pray because we're selfish. And we want things for us. We have our ambitions. We're not interested in what God wants. And we're not interested in giving the things that we have back to God. But here's Hannah, desperate for a son. But she's willing to give that son back to God's service for all of his life. In fact, the the force of the verb here is more like, I've already given him to you by faith. So when you give me the child, he's already yours. He's already yours. And you see, actually, when God gives Samuel to Hannah, he's doing more than answering her prayer. We're told in in the New Testament that that God is far more able to, to do far more than we ask or imagine. And here it is. He answers Hannah's prayer, but also gives gives the one who is going to be the kingmaker, answering the prayers that his people should be praying, but aren't because they're apostate. Hannah has right motives and God answers her prayer. A friend of mine is a is a pastor in China. He um, he was in a in a meeting with with the elders of the church, and they said, you know, we think the church in China really needs some people who know their Bibles really really well. Lots and lots of Christians, no no Bible college anywhere in the country. So we really need some people who can can train people to read the Bible really well. So we'd like you to teach Greek and Hebrew to our eight year old children. And so they have a class, and he teaches biblical languages to small children because that's the best time to learn languages. So that when they grow up, they will be China's Bible scholars. They have looked at their children and given their kids to God. They've looked at the needs of God's people and they've given their children to God. I wonder, would we do the same? Do we do the same with the things that we plead for from God? Um, that he gives to us. Uh, we meet Eli in verse 9. Uh, he is not sat on the ground like a commoner would be but literally on a throne. He's in the seat of honour. He's by the gatepost. He's in the judge's seat. So here is the high priest. He's the man of honour who sits in the place of judgment over the people as they come to, to worship. And we see him again in verse 12. He's just watching Hannah, uh, watching her at prayer. And, and I think what he says next is pretty damning, isn't it, for uh, Israelite religion. I hope if I came in here uh, in preparation for Sunday evening and found you on your knees uh, in the church praying my first reaction wouldn't be, drunkard! I hope I wouldn't think you've been drinking. I hope I would think you're praying. But you see, for Eli, he's so used to seeing people come to the festival and drink their, their wine and come to, to the tabernacle in a drunken state, he's forgotten what it looks like to find anybody in heartfelt, passionate prayer. It's damning for the generation, but it makes Hannah stand out all the more, doesn't it? And it, and it illustrates, the, when I said that the, the big story starts to bubble up, uh, Eli and his family start to be presented to us as, as not the best. Eli's at best bumbling. His sons are uh, fornicating and abusing the people, as we'll see next time. 
And Eli is presented as somebody who is formally in the place of the high priest. Uh, but he's not. Uh, he's not uh, intimate with God the way Hannah is. Hey, look at verse 17. He pronounces a blessing on her. Go, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. But notice uh, he uses the phrase God of Israel. Everywhere else in the passage, God is Yahweh. He is the covenant Lord. Uh, Lord in capital letters, wherever you see it in the passage. He is he's the covenant God. He's the God who makes promises and keeps them. He's the God who is for his people. And that's the God that Hannah knows. Uh, Eli stands at more distantly apart. Uh, he's formerly uh, the high priest, but he's not intimate with God the way Hannah is. She is before the face of the Lord. He's merely uh, on the outside of the tabernacle. And so begins uh, the, the comparison between his evil sons and Samuel uh, that comes out more in the next, in the next couple of passages. Eli has sons, but he does not serve the Lord nearly as well as this faithful uh, lady from rural Ephraim. And she's a nobody, except that the Bible records her. But she's faithful. And perhaps there's an application in there for us. Uh, I look around the church today in this country, the, the, the formal denominations, one of which I'm ordained into, and I see them dragging the Lord's name through the mud as they uh, commit sexual immorality and approve of it the way Eli's sons did and reject right worship. And I ask, can we, a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of people no one will ever hear of, can we be Hannah's in our generation? In a generation in which the nation as a whole is apostate, a large proportion of people in the visible church is apostate. Can we be Hannah's? People who are devoted heart and soul to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever Hannah feels about Eli's rudeness in verse, uh, verses 11, 12, 13, uh, she takes his words as the words of God, verse 17. Eli says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And she says, may your servant find favour in your eyes. And she goes on her way and eats something she wouldn't eat before. And her face was no longer downcast. So Eli is, is formally in the place of, of the mouthpiece for God. So when he says a benediction for her, she takes that to be God's word to her, and so it comes true. He's in, he's in a, a, a position of authority, a God-given position of authority. And we get that again later in the book of 1 Samuel, when Saul is the king who has been rejected by God, but he's been anointed. He's, a, he's the official king, and David won't touch him. And we'll see that again in a few weeks' time. There is a... The, the godly people will respect the authority of the, those appointed over them. And uh, Eli's word comes true. Hannah is even godly in this. I wonder, uh, would we, will we take God at his word uh, the way Hannah does? Will we have that faith to plead with God on the basis of his promises and to trust him? At this point, I do want to interject a little bit. Back to my initial caveat. Eli here, you see, in speaking God's words to Hannah, is speaking a personal word to her. And not to us. I said at the beginning, we need to be careful not to assume that it's a direct word to us. And it's precisely at this point where Hannah takes Eli's word as God's word to her, not God's word to everybody everywhere. And so Hannah has a promise from the high priest uh, to go on. And I take it, uh, therefore, our application there would be to listen to our high priest. 
the Lord Jesus, who has gone into the, the holiest of holies, and listen to his words. We want certain promises we can stand on. We listen to his words. And only where God has promised can we take those things to be at rock solid. So that's our first section. Verse 19, they go home. Elkanah does what, uh, what husbands do, and the Lord remembers her. That word remember always has the sense of acting in, in saving ways. And so God acts, and he rescues her. He gives her the, the child that she wants. And so we transition into uh, the second passage, the second event, if you like, the gift of God and Hannah's faithfulness. We can be tempted, I think, to cut corners, can't we, as Christians? Not pray, not read our Bibles, not meet regularly together, skip home group from time to time. We can be tempted to think no one will notice because we're nobodies anyway. But you see, Hannah, Hannah's habit is devotion. It's her regular devotion to God that means when she is provoked, she runs to God, not away from him. Do you see? She goes to pray when, it, when times get tough. It was a lifetime of uh, hearing the scriptures and knowing her God and walking with him day by day that prepared her to make a vow. She knows what God's about. She gives her son to God. I think it's the same, re- the same thing that's at play when in verse 23, if you look down at verse 23... Elkanah, who is responsible for what, her, what his, husband, his wife does, says, do what seems best to you. He's prepared to accept that his wife is wise. She's a godly woman. She's made a sensible plan. It's an extraordinary plan to give her son back to God. But he's able to trust her, trust her judgment, because she's a person of deep devotion to God. And I take it it's the same thing. Uh, the same reason why God is able to entrust to her the infant kingmaker. She was the ideal mother to raise this boy, this great man of the Bible. Uh, look at verse 28, the very last uh, clause of this section. And he worshipped the Lord there. They take uh, Samuel up, they hand him over to Eli, they make the sacrifices. And he worshipped the Lord there. I think that he there is uh, Samuel who is maybe three or four years old, where does little Samuel learn to worship the Lord? He's never been up to Shiloh. He's never sat by Eli's feet. Where did he learn this devotion? At his mother's lap. I think there's a lot we can learn from Hannah about the value of a life privately, quietly devoted to knowing God in word and prayer. And walking with God day by day. A lot we can learn about how that prepares her for the tasks God has given her later in her life. About preparing, uh, there's, there's lots we can learn about what it is to prepare our children. Uh, some of you will have kids one day. And what it is to prepare the kids God entrusts to us for God's service uh, in the years of their lives. So Hannah brings the boy up to Shiloh. Eli's still present. He remembers her being there from four or five years previously. Again, it's an indictment on the nation, isn't it, that somebody praying so earnestly is so memorable to him. And they bring this abundant offering, uh, three young bulls or or a bull of three years, I think it's probably the former, 22 litres of flour, a similar volume of wine, far more than they need to offer as sacrifices of thanksgiving. They're just really happy. 
They're delighted to bring this child to God and offer him to God with this, with this sacrifice. Uh, two things I want us to notice before we move on to the, the hymn. Notice verse 27. I prayed for this child. The word this is emphatic in the Hebrew. Not I prayed for a child, but I prayed for this child. This is what I had in mind. And this is what God has given me. He's given me exactly what I was looking for. And, now, and, and then in verse 28, so now I give him to the Lord. It's again emphatic I. God has done what I prayed for, and so I'm going to do what I promised. And it says, if you like, I'd already offered this child to God by faith, and now I'm just fulfilling that. I'm just going through with it. I'm giving God what I promised. Hannah is a woman who makes an oath, makes a vow, and keeps it. She's a woman of faithfulness. She prays because of her faith, and she gives because of her faithfulness. Hannah is really clear about who the child belongs to. And she fulfills the promise that she's made to God. And the thing is, because she's faithful and gives him to the service of the Lord in the temple, he becomes the answer, or part of the answer, to the whole nation's prayers. Her little act of faithfulness, unseen by most people, becomes the foundation for appointing the first king through her son. All of which, I think, leads us to the prayer at him in verses 2 to 10, at 1 to 10, rather, of chapter 2. Hannah's song, The God Who Reverses Fortunes. I wish we had more time. Uh, I wish, in retrospect, we were doing the whole of one Sunday in about a year. That would have given me time to do this more in depth. Uh, I want to make a couple of observations before we look at it. The first being uh, 2 Samuel 22, which is the other end of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, which is one book, is a hymn of David that mirrors this one. Picks up the same language, the same themes, the same ideas. And says, for David, so it was with with Hannah. Uh, What happened to Hannah biologically happens for David in terms of military victories. More than that, uh, this hymn in 1 Samuel 2 is the basis of Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. Not not verbatim, but pretty close to it. As Mary picks up the same ideas, the same language, and says of the coming Jesus... That God has reversed my fortunes. God has called me blessed. He has taken the humble servant and made me a, a, a prominent, mighty person in his service. With that as our background, uh, let's have a quick look. Verse 1. Hannah is in the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. She's part of God's people. She's in the Lord as we are in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. She has an enemy, but she has an enemy because she's in the Lord. Panina has been provoking her to reject her God, but she belongs to the Lord. And he is a God who saves. He's a God of deliverance. Verse 2, the middle line, there literally is, there is no one. There's no one else. There is only the Lord. There's only one holy, only one who's set apart, only one who's righteous. It's the Lord again. There's only one rock, a word out of Deuteronomy 32 describing safety, security, a high place, a solid, sturdy place, a place of protection. God is the one who raises up his people and keeps them safe. Of course, Hannah has experienced this, hasn't she? Her enemy is Penina, who has been provoking her year after year after year. But verse 3, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak with such arrogance. The Lord has weighed your words. 
The Lord has torn down your arrogance and raised up the person that you have been taunting. Uh, God's opposition to uh, pride is throughout this passage. Look at verse 4. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. And of course, Hannah's own autobiographical comment, she who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. And God reverses human fortunes. Those who are powerful, those who are proud, those who are full, those who are arrogant, those who are, have many children and who uh, point the finger at others, they will be taken down. But those who are weak, those who are hungry, and those who have no children will be raised up. The humble, servant-hearted Hannah clings to her God through tough times and trusts him to deliver her. And in the fullness of time, he lifts up. That's the, the main verb of this song. He lifts up, he raises up those who are humble and takes down the proud. And God is sovereign over knowledge, verse 3, and he's sovereign over life and death, verses 6 and 7. The Lord brings death and makes alive, which is not a surprise. If, you, if you've got a God who can create the universe out of nothing with a breath, you've got a God who can create a Samuel in the womb. You've got a God who can create a Jesus in the womb out of nothing. And you have a God who can take the proud down to the grave. And you have a God who can raise princes up from naught, verse 8. A man like David, for example. A man like Jesus. And raise them out of nothing. And you can tear down a Saul, for example, a proud king. I take it that's a word of prophecy that, that shapes the whole of 1 Samuel. In the middle of verse 8, you, we take a decidedly eternal turn, don't we? The Lord rules the whole earth. The foundation of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. And he takes down the wicked. He guards the feet of his saints. He, he, just as he's established the world, so he establishes the feet of his people. We will not be moved if God doesn't will it. But the wicked will be silenced in darkness. How so? Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. It feels very Psalm 2. It would be really intriguing to know which came first. I take it this came first. And Psalm 2 was written with a bit of reflection on it. See, the world opposes God. It's as if we've moved away from Penina with her taunting, pointing fingers at the feast to all the nations gathered together. All those who, who reject God and they stand before him and they, they wave their puny fists at God and, and mock him. And God laughs at them. And he thunders against them. And he tears them down as he rails against them from heaven. Uh, maybe in the present, ISIS, despotic regimes, waving their fists at God and he will tear them down. But he will also raise up. He will raise up someone in their place. He will put in their place a king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, literally, of his Messiah. And again, we find Hannah is being prophetic and insightful. In a, you know, she's the first person to put the idea of Messiah with king in the Bible. She's, she's got this great insight. She's a great housewife theologian, if you like. And God will raise up a David who will be the king. He will put down the proud. And he'll raise up great King David's greater son, who will eternally reign. 
and will eternally put down his enemies. We'll think much more about the king over the next nine weeks in 1 Samuel, so I won't spoil the book for you, I hope. But we're looking for a leader. The nation need a king because they're doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. They need to listen to a king. A king who will humble the proud and raise up the humble. I said at the beginning that we need to be careful how we apply this story. It's not a promise to us that God will uh, fix all the things in our lives that we are uh, bitter and anxious about, as as he did for Hannah. On the other hand, this song is uh, is Hannah's reflection on how her, her life mirrors God's great salvation work. And just as it's true for her, it's true in David's song, it's true in Mary's song, and I guess it becomes a song for us, doesn't it? In some ways. Hannah begins brilliantly with her own experience with Penina, but she ends. She ends with the great reversal, doesn't she? Heaven and hell. And the King Jesus on his throne for eternity, putting down his enemies and raising up the weak. She sees that in her little reversal is a picture of the great reversal. And she sees that uh, through her little reversal, God is taking steps towards the big reversal. Which is right, isn't it? And so I think we have a way of applying. Let me, let me give you five little thoughts that I hope will be helpful for you to go and reflect on as we end. What do we learn from Hannah? First, God is opposed to the proud. He tears down the proud, whether it's Penina or Eli or Saul. He is opposed to the proud. Will you submit to him? You can humble yourself or you can be humbled by the king. There are no other options. Secondly, God is for the humble person who cries out to him. Having humbled ourselves, will we cry out to him? Hannah is is humbled because of her circumstances, no children, but she also humbles herself before the throne of God. She comes into his presence and prays and pleads. She comes not not to demand, but to ask for mercy. She comes as a servant. Will we do the same? Will our prayers take that shape? Will we come to God as humble people longing for a work of God in our lives? Thirdly, we learn that God is working towards uh, this great reversal, his ultimate reversal for all his people. That's where Hannah ends, isn't it? That's where the book of uh, 1 Samuel is going. Great King David and his greater son. God is going to establish his King Jesus forever. And we should have the same confidence that Hannah has, that God is at work. That's why she's able to pray. And so fourthly, I think we need to learn the lesson of praying alongside God's purposes. It's often our habit, I think, to pray for things that seem important to us. But Hannah prays, utterly committed that what God gives to her, she will give back to God. Not for her selfish ends, but because she wants to see God's work advance. And so whether it is uh, a job or a relationship, or a child, or whatever it is we might be praying for, desperate for, are we praying rightly? Are we humble before our God? And are we praying in order to give back to God? Or do we pray for something else?
And finally, fifthly, when God does give those reversals, and he will do from time to time because he's that sort of God, he will meet our needs, he will bring deliverances for us, will we see them for what they are? He's a good God, isn't he? He gives gifts to his people. Look at how Hannah responds. She's delighted, isn't she? They give this abundant sacrifice. We have to see God's little reversals in our lives as tokens of his love and mercy to us. We have to see them as gifts to be used in his service. And we have to see them as little pictures of the great reversal that he has worked and is working through the Lord Jesus and one day will bring to completion in him. See, when God reverses your pain, when God brings those deliverances, know it's because he loves you. And because in some way, big or small, as it was with bringing Samuel to Hannah, God is going to use that in his service to bring about his big reversal. None of us are going to be big players in that, I guess. Jesus has already done most of the work. And he will bring it to completion. But it is God's purpose to use the prayers of his humble people and his answers to prayer to move the story along. So will we be willing players in that? Will we bring our prayers to him, pleading humbly for his mercy to us, that we might give back to him what he gives, so that he might bring glory to the Lord Jesus on the day when he returns? Shall we pray? Our Father, praise you that you are a God of love and mercy and, and great care for your people. Praise you for the humble, glorious faith of Hannah. Pray that we here might be as devoted to you as she was and as committed to know you in our everyday lives as she was. Pray that you would work through us and as you give us little deliverances from trials of every kind that we might give those things back to you as uh, gifts, uh, as uh, things for use in your service. And Father, as we do that, would we see you uh, working at your uh, eternal purposes in the world. Father, have mercy on us that we might see the world as you do and live in the world as Hannah did, for the sake of your glory. Amen.